Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod, what's up? My name is Braden Dennis, joined as always by my co-host Simon Belanger. Simon, what's going on, man? What have you been up to? I've been just watching so much sports. I don't know if you've been doing the same. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of baseball uh, since the Habs got eliminated, kind of lost interest in hockey a little bit. But uh, yeah, just mostly baseball. I know uh, you've probably been watching football, right? I've been aggressively watching football. I don't think I've missed like a single snap. Like all Sunday, I got like seven screens on. I watched the primetime games. It's getting a bit egregious. For a guy who watches so much football, I am currently 0-2 in fantasy football, so uh, it's clearly not translating to, uh, to any skills in, <laughs> in that category. You should category. just invest in DraftKings. Just do it. Blindly do it. <laughs> I, should, I, should, I should just soak it at this point. Uh, just invest in DraftKings. The Stanley Cup playoffs obviously on as well, and then there's good baseball and basketball on as well. So that's, that's a good point, though. DraftKings is... Uh, do they have an unlimited marketing marketing budget? Because during every sports game, every sports podcast I listen to, DraftKings is pasting their name on everything. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know they're the one name that you like. Even I don't do fantasy sports, but even as someone who doesn't, and yeah, I do enjoy like playing poker. But uh, I've never used DraftKings. But it's the one name. If I'm thinking fantasy sports, to me, like automatically, I think DraftKings. Yeah, that's for like the daily fantasy gambling, but they have a pretty good, pretty good moat. Uh, their biggest competitor being FanDuel. But that aside, before we get into this t- week's topic, which is thinking rationally, thinking long term, we have a question from the audience about pensions and RSPs. Do I need to do my RSP if I'm in a pension? Um, our resident pension expert, Simon, is going to handle this question. Yeah, so the the question, the question came from uh, Chris. So thanks, Chris, for sending us your question. So he said that uh, he currently works for an employer that uh, contributes, and he contributes to OMERS. So OMERS is the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System uh, Plan. So it's a defined benefit pension plan. I'm very familiar with it because I used to be part of it, and my spouse is also uh, part of that. And he's asking if there's a point to set up a separate RSP. Um, if you already have a uh, pension like Omer's so um, it's more it can be a little complex but I'll try to simplify it as much so typically defined benefits is what people will think of a traditional pension plan so it's usually based on a formula based on your uh, calculation oftentimes it'll be your best three or best five years and then there's a multiplier and then you multiply with your years of service so that's typically what the formula will look like um, some of these plans are fully indexed to inflation some of them uh, are not fully indexed it really depends on the plan but that's typically what a defined benefit plan is what happens with the defined benefit plan is actually it uses a lot of your rsp room um, so that calculation is done usually by the plan administrator and it's called a pension adjustment so it they look at what your pension benefit uh basically the pension benefit that you accumulated during the year and they do an adjustment and basically that uses your rsp room um 
you'll usually have a little bit of RSP room. Uh, you might have more depending on your salary, also how generous the plan is or not. Having said that, because those plans typically, you know, guarantee you a certain amount of money based on that formally formula when you do retire. Um, and that money that you start withdrawing when you retire is actually taxable income. So what happens is if you open an RSP and you still have obviously some, let's say you still have some room and you start contributing to an RSP. Well, when you do retire, you'll have at some point start drawing down on that RSP, which will add to your taxable income. So you'll be taxed more on top of that it could also affect some of your benefits like old age security depending on what your taxation level is at retirement because if you reach a certain plateau for old age security you actually uh, start seeing a claw back with the government i think it's in the 70,000s, and then if you make over a hundred and something then you're just not eligible for old age security so if you have a very generous pension plan, um, you're probably better off investing in a TFSA. Um, so Omer's is a very good pension plan. Um, so that's why in Chris's uh, position, I would probably invest in a tax-free savings account because then obviously you're taxed right now, but you don't have to worry as much about the contribution room. Obviously you have to make sure you still have enough for your TFSA and you can find that out on your notice of assessment. Um, but when when you start withdrawing the money, especially if you're using your TFSA at retirement, um, that money that you withdraw is not taxable income. So it really helps you out. And the whole point of an RSP is that you want to put money in the RSP because you're at a higher taxation level right now. So you can withdraw it when you retire, when you're at a lower taxation level. Uh, but again, if your pension plan is really generous, it might not be a good idea. If you have a defined contribution pension plan like the one I have right now, it's a bit different. Um, those will tend to be a bit less generous. So depending on how generous or not your defined contribution uh, plan is, you'll probably have quite a bit more of RSP room and your potential income at retirement may be lower. It really depends. You'll have to make some assumption there. So um, in my case, I have a defined contribution pension plan. So I'd that type of plan is pretty simple. I put a certain amount, my employer matches a certain amount, and then I essentially manage those funds and I basically retire when I think I have enough money to retire. So that's the essence of it. So what I personally do is I do have an RSP and I do have a TFSA. I tend to put more in my TFSA than I do in my RSP for the same kind of reasoning that, uh, that I talked about. But in a nutshell, I mean, if you have a good defined benefit pension plan, um, you're probably better off uh, putting that money in a TFSA. Okay. So question for you. Yeah. Cause yes, TFSA is the ideal vehicle for you in that case. Say I am a lifer in a pension plan such as this one at Omer's. I don't see myself quitting. I, you know, I have many, many years of service that's going to help. And my TFSA is maxed. I'm fully tapped out because it's really not that much. Do I, and, and by the way, my pension is going to be a lot. Like it's going to be a fair bit of taxable income. Do I go into a non-registered account or do I use an RSP? What do I do? 
Yeah, I mean, I would probably go ahead and use a uh, non-registered account. You can always open an RSP a little bit and put a little bit of money in there, but uh, it's a non a non-registered account will be taxed differently than uh, RSP, so it's taxation depending on your capital gains. Uh, but also, there is a dividend tax, so typically those will be lower. Um, so it might be a better idea in that situation to open a non-taxable account. Again, it all depends on your own situation, and um, if you're De depending on how you're generous or not, the defined benefit plan is, but also your salary, right? So that will have impact on your uh, contribution room as well. So um, I would be tempted to say that a non-registered account is probably the best option. But again, it will vary based on the situation. Yeah, that that's, that's the correct answer. It, it does vary based on the situation. But if you are making, if you are going to make a boatload with this pension and you are going to have RSP withdrawals, your taxable income is going to be not good. So maybe it's start to, time to start looking at a non-registered um, that may be much more tax efficient. All right. Uh, one last thing, actually, Moving. I would add, yeah, go just for before it. we move on, um, make sure you understand your pension plan before you decide what account you actually want to use because that will vary and that's probably the biggest factor and just as a side note for you chris um i don't know if you were aware but starting in 2023 omers will actually be um doing conditional indexing for the pension plan so you can always uh, just look up omers and you'll see that uh, effective january 1st 2023 um it's uh, they call it shared risk indexing what it means it's conditional indexing so if the money in the plan if the plan can allow it they will index the uh, pension uh, but if the plan for its sustainability cannot allow it they probably won't index it for a certain year or they may provide a lower level of indexation but that's just an example um, there's a lot of different you know variables and all a lot of different type of plans so just make sure not only Chris but everyone else if you have a, a pension plan whether it's defined benefits or defined contribution make sure you understand it before you decide which account to open all right so now you know if you have a pension question those are going to Simon <laughs> keep me out of it keep me out of it all right so let's think rationally the the juicy part of this episode Simon and I are going to go through some situations that happen that happen all the time by the way sometimes daily these are the kinds of things that you're going to face as an investor long term and you need to know how you're going to react and how you're going to tell yourself to think rationally when these things happen because behaviorally we are really bad humans are really really bad with a lot of these things that happen like behaviorally there's tons of books you can read about how even people who are just basic index investors still fail to beat them or fail to match the market because they're irrational in times of when they buy and sell and when they contribute and when they pull out. And there's lots of books that can back this up. So these are the kinds of things that you are, you are going to have to come across. You're going to have to think rationally about as long-term investors. So first one, big drops on a daily basis on, on different positions. So 
For instance, company X you own falls 8% or even 15% in one day you get some notification from your brokerage. Uh, Did I hear Tesla? Oh, oh God, no. Uh, Assuming you don't have some stop loss on your account, which I never recommend stop losses. I I hate stop losses. Um, But you get some notification on your brokerage or you go on your brokerage or you go wherever you track your holdings and you're like, oh, shit, company X is down 15% today. What do I do? What's the first thing you do, Simon, when you see that? Obviously, it probably with that much volatility is some sort of news piece that has come out. Maybe it's earnings. What are, what are you instantly scanning for? My first thought, is, I, I'm stealing your thunder right now, but my first thought is, did they release earnings today and I didn't know about it? Yeah, yeah, that's, that would often be my first uh, reaction as well. The second one would be, okay, if there hasn't been... Um, any new earnings release and I forgot about it, uh, then there's probably a news piece um, that affected the, the stock for whatever reason. Uh, what would be, would that be the second one for you as well, Marina? Yeah, just some sort of news article or, uh, you know, competitor Amazon has decided to enter the space and, you know, your, your stock is doomed because they just div- divide and conquer every industry out there. These are the kinds of things that affect positions in a major way on a daily basis so i'm curious what do you what do you do if the news is truly bad because these are the things that people are interested in knowing if that earnings report is bad you know they had some big loss or you know they missed revenue by x percentage and the market hates it are you what are you doing like just what, what? How are you approaching the situation? Yeah, usually I'll uh, just try to listen to the conference call just to get a better understanding of what created the the big drop, for example, and to see if it's really something that's more short term or long term. If it's something that's long term, then I will do some more research. But that's something I may reconsider my position in that business and could potentially consider it selling. But I will do some research, make sure that my thesis makes sense and that I do agree that this will affect the company long term in a negative way if it's really short term then and i've again i've done my research listen to conference call look at the quarterly report um, and it's just going to be something for the next year or two for example um, i might look at it as a, just a buying opportunity to add more to the stock so for me it's really is it short term or is it long term if it's long term that's when the the red flags start uh, kind of going off in my head yeah, that's completely fair. And the other thing I would mention is, oh, the headline might be that uh, your your position missed earnings or missed revenue by X percentage. But sure, maybe it missed five analysts on Wall Street's targets. But what if those five analysts on Wall Street were completely off? And it, this has nothing intrinsically to do with the business, but that the analysts were completely off when they're throwing their doubt. So look back, I know comparable sales to a year ago. How does that match up? If sales are still up 15% 
but way, way lower than expected. Analysts thought that, you know, revenue is going to be up 25%. That's not bad news. That's the analysts didn't know what they were talking about or they overestimated what revenue growth was going to be. So that's another perfect buying opportunity because 15% revenue growth is nothing to sneeze at. Sure, it wasn't the 25% that they that they thought it was going to be. So maybe there's some uh, multiple contraction happening. But short-term multiple contraction happening on a stock you own is not a reason to exit a position. So this is really contextual in terms of how you want to handle that. Uh, If it is financial results-based, like an earnings report, and then what Simon said, is it long-term or is it short-term? If it's if it's something that's really short term and is going to go away next quarter, well, it's nothing to nothing to freak out about. Yeah, and keeping this also. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, yeah. Okay, so I was going to say the the <laughs> wow, we are way off right now. I was going to say the the other thing is is if stocks are all down, like all the entire market is down, then don't lose any sleep over it because you know everything in the ocean, all the ships are going down when the sea level lowers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you'll see that like stock prices will move pretty intensely just on like an analyst like hiking the price target or lowering it, which I mean, oftentimes mean absolutely nothing, but you know, the stock market short term will be affected by that. Um, And another example too of what can affect a business short term, but can really be good long term. And I know you're a big fan of that company, uh, those company actually, but a company switching from a more traditional model, like a tech company to a SaaS model, AutoCAD or uh, I mean Autodesk for example that's a good example of that so when a business switches like that in the short term for the next few few years you could see really a drop in sales or revenue but when that new model starts kicking in then you can really see growth pick right back up so you have to keep you know keep things in mind keep things in context and really keep a long-term mindset yeah that's a that's a great example because Two, two, three years ago, when they're finishing their transition from the licensing to the SaaS model, you know, that pivot wasn't easy. And revenue did stall out for a bit. Once that transition was successful, then you're seeing that acceleration pick up. And then that, again, speaks to the moat of the business because there's still demand for that. And during that transition period, they did not lose customers in the grand scheme of things. So now that it's really a accelerating again speaks to the successful transition to a subscription-based model which has endless benefits that we could go into on another show but that's a that's a good thing so bad market drops in a single day flash back six months ago to march volatility 10 percent five percent seven percent anything in between daily s&p down on the day you and i are not selling positions this is when we actually get excited do i like when individual stocks i own are way down when the rest of the market is is even or up no because that's usually a good signal that there's something wrong with the business there's a bad report there's a bad headline blah 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 if everything is getting punished in a bear market i get so excited because 
There's nothing wrong with the business and it is on sale and that's where real wealth is created. So what were you thinking back in March other than us texting back and forth about being excited? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, holy shit, I've never seen a 10% drop in a day. But aside from yeah. that, like, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty much like, just like you said, I get excited because I have companies that are my watch list. And there's always going to be a few companies that I love that are just a bit pricey in my view. And that's usually a great opportunity to start positions and though when you get those big drops. Um, and I tend to like to have like, you know, like just have a plan, um, especially if I like a company and I'll have a price at which I want to start getting in or valuation at which I want to start getting in. And usually I'll do, you know, if there's another 10, 15 percent drop, I'll add another another installment of that investment and so on. But that's that's the main reasoning. I don't panic. I just kind of stay calm um, if you know, learn from your past experience too. If back uh, six months ago in March, if you were stressing out about the market going down and you were losing sleep over it, um, I know Braden and I tend to be fully invested in stocks and I'm fully invested in stocks, but I do have some cash on the side that I'm ready to push the, pull the trigger on. But if you're really, you know, if it really stressed you out and you were, you know, you didn't handle that well, well, you might want to allocate at least a small portion to, for example, like bonds, a, a bond ETF or something like that. Um, like, you know, all equities is fine if you can handle it. But uh, I think it was, was it Andrew, the millionaire teacher? that we had yeah. uh, earlier and he was saying that yeah i think he had someone in his family that she would panic every time this would happen so he said for her like it would be ridiculous to have all stocks because she's going to act irrationally when there's big drops that happen so for someone like that um having a better mix will probably help you out in those times yeah he does talk about those people who get get triggered by big market declines and how bonds can actually boost their returns because it'll decrease the likelihood of them you know going to their brokerage account and pressing sell on everything so in that case it makes sense to have a lower volatility profile and notice how i didn't say lower risk profile i said lower volatility profile because those are not the same thing risk and volatility are not the same thing anyway so in that case it makes sense for someone to have less volatility if they are going to act more rationally. So if you know yourself and you go, I'm not, I am not going to act rationally if the market falls again, um, COVID numbers go back up as they are. Um, I know I'm, I know myself, so I'm going to allocate some more of my portfolio into less volatility that may boost your returns. But if you're like us, when you love when there's big market declines, because you know, high quality businesses, will thrive through this and continue to do well, then you get excited uh, and then you're in a different camp and you can be all in equities. So you have to know not your risk profile, but your volatility profile because those are not the same thing. And be and be honest with yourself. There's no shame. If you think you're going to react that way, that's fine. You can have a like Braden said, just a lower volatility portfolio and it will probably help you in the long run over, you know, you panic and you sell all of it. So yeah, and that that would be not good. All right. I guess I guess looking back on March, the only thing that 
is was annoying about all of it is that it rebounded so quickly and I couldn't continue to play capital. <laughs> I think we had about two weeks, three weeks, and that was that was it. So uh, that's why you do try to catch a falling knife and keep dollar cost averaging. All right, moving on. IPOs. How do you think rationally about IPOs? I have a term for IPOs called it's probably overpriced IPO. So I think about that most of the time. And in an environment like this where it's IPO and SPAC merger IPO craziness, uh, Snowflake, you know, launching up over 100% in one day with the big uh, cloud IPO last week. Um, what do you, how do you think about these kinds of things rationally? Like you, I know you look at positions for months, perhaps even years before entering them. So I know we don't have to, to talk to you about this, but how do you think about IPOs rationally when there's this FOMO seeming to go on right now? Yeah. So the first thing people need to understand is the IPO price is not the price you're going to pay. Like that's, that is for sure. So the price that a company say they price at a $25 uh, share for the IPO, this is the price that institutional buyers will be able to get in. You'll get in at when it starts trading on the market. And if that's the case in this current environment, it'll probably like you know, and for something that's priced at $25, it might be $40, the, the price you'll get when it starts trading. So let's, a lot of people think, oh, I'll buy it at the IPO price until, unless, you know, you're listening to us and you have like over a million dollars to invest or something like that, you're probably not going to have that available to you. And even then, um, so just to put that out of the way, um, IPOs in general, I would personally give it at least two quarters, but probably a good year until um, I would start considering a position in the company. Uh, the reason for that is the prospectus is all nice and dandy and the company tries to really make everything look good. And the prospectus is what uh, the company will file before going public. And one of them that I'm just started digging into is Nueve, N-U-V-E-I. So it's listed in the, on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, started trading last week. So it's a payment processing company uh, based in Montreal. Um, it's in it's an interesting company, but there's still I'm still starting to just dig in through the prospectus. But uh, waiting a bit more to start a position just gives you so much more information about the company. Um, when you invest really early, there's a lot of volatility, especially right now in IPOs. Um, but if you give yourself some time, you'll understand the business better. The hype might be a bit lower for that company as well. Um, I personally think the good outweighs the bad in terms of waiting a bit longer than getting in too early um, but just to get back at Nueve and I'm probably butchering the name so if someone works for them and they uh, they know how to pronounce the name please let us know uh, but it's um, they do payment processing in various areas and we once I dig into it more I can go into do a deep dive on them but uh, they do um, they're present in online gaming social gaming online retail online marketplaces digital goods and services financial services and travel um, I went and did a quick search on Glassdoor and uh, su not surprisingly but I wasn't familiar with them um, the founder and the CEO well I believe it's the founder but uh, he's the CEO right now uh, Philip Fayer um, same guy same guy it's, it's found 
founder it's founder led so founder yep. led so he's uh uh employees like have a super high rating of him so that's uh, very good so 93 percent of them approved of the ceo and 80 percent would recommend the company to a friend and in terms of uh, payment processing they did 35 uh, billion a bit more than that in annual toll volume in the last 12 months um 71 percent from mobile and e-commerce and uh, the revenue is mostly volume and fee derived and uh, they did 246 million in revenue in 2019. Um, that's the extent of my research so far, so I haven't gone fully in through the prospectus, but it could be an interesting play in terms of uh, payment processing here in Canada. Um, maybe in the next few months, I'll be able to uh, dig in a bit more and do a, a deep dive on them. But again, I would not start a position in them right now until they at least have a couple quarters under their belt, if not a full year. Yeah, like, look, I love payment processors more than anything in the world. If you if you ever listen to this podcast, you know that. So this IPO, I'm very interested, and everything looks good. The growth is the growth is fantastic. The fact that Simon's main talking point was, we do like that it's founder led, but the main talking point was that you know its glass door ratings are great. Means we literally have no idea. Um, like a history of the financials of this company. Uh, it looks great. Everything l- looks very interesting. The business model's fantastic, but we don't know enough yet. So we're willing to sit on the sidelines. Say in a year from now, I'm like, holy, this business is incredible. It's 800 million in market cap. Amazing. And it's doubled. So now it's say, let's, let's say it's now 2 million market cap. If it's a true 10 bagger, I'm not going to worry about that first missing out on that first bag if I now understand the business. So this is these are rational things to think about when you're seeing IPOs soar through the moon is do you understand the business yet? If not, take a little bit more time. There's zero rush. There's no rush. If it's going to be in a fantastic business, you don't have to get it at IPO. Yeah, and you'll you'll see the financials and the prospectus, and obviously this was just a first glance because I haven't like it's three hundred something pages, so I only looked over it. Uh, but again, like Braden said, you just have so much more information once a company has been public. At least, like I said, if you can wait at least a year, that's great. And I personally think that the the downside of buying in on the IPO day, for example, or shortly after it IPO'd, is way greater than you know than the opposite so um that's kind of my view on it moving on the term all-time highs i see all the time that people are worried about entering a business or want to exit a position because of all-time highs or 52-week highs this is complete garbage Let's think about this rationally. If a business is at all-time highs, they're probably doing well. If a company never got to all-time highs, it would never be going up. Think about that concept for a second. If a stock never got to all-time highs and continued to reach all-time highs, then it wouldn't be increasing in value. So don't get triggered by something being at all-time highs or at 52-week highs for reason to not enter the position, if it's a great business. 
Of course, things are going to, at times, be at all-time highs. And you might think to yourself, wow, I could have bought it for 30% cheaper three months ago. Yeah, well, you didn't. And it's still good now. It's still a great business. The valuation makes sense. Do not let all-time highs trigger you for not entering a position. Like, let's think about this realistically. So, Simon, how often... Or how many times have you entered a stock and you think that perhaps it was the highest it traded ever up until that point, the day you bought it? Because I know I have bought positions at its current trading day. It was as highest as it had ever been at that day. I mean, I, I don't really pay attention to all-time highs, I'll be honest. Which is the right yeah. answer. Which is the right answer. So I just speculate. I speculate that there have been times yeah. that that's happened to me. Yeah, know. I'm sure it has. I mean, usually, like, it's just you got to put the all-time highs in perspective too, right? So if they're hitting a all-time high, but their revenue or revenues are going down, I mean, that would be a red flag right there. Like, that would be probably, you know, bubble territory. Um, but again, I don't really pay much attention. I tend to look more at different valuation metrics and if those make sense from what you know, I think the company can grow in the future. Um, that's kind of the, the simplest way to do it. Um, I don't, I can't remember the last time I looked at the uh, 52 weeks high and lows, to be honest. Yeah, it's com- it's a completely useless metric. Completely, completely useless metric. And when you search up a stock on Google, uh, let's see here. These are the things you get when you search up a stock on Google. You get the chart. You get its open price for the day, its high for the day, its low for the day, market cap and P.E. ratio, dividend yield. Okay, those three are useful. Previous close, so yesterday's close, and then 52-week 52, 52 highs and lows. Come on. So that is one, two, three, five. There's nine metrics, and three of them are useful. Like, what is that? At Google, this is complete garbage. What's with the 52-week high and lows? doesn't mean anything. So when people ask me, does 52-week high and low mean anything? No, it doesn't. If it's at the low, you might think, and it's a great business, you might just think it's, it's a, perhaps a buying opportunity. But that's it. All right, news headlines. Something comes out uh, about the broader market. A stock market perhaps is... They love making ridiculous headlines. What was the what was the headline today that you were, you were texting me about? Oh yeah, this morning uh, the pre market on CNBC was saying like, oh, the market you know is uh, recovering from the uh, the down streak of the past three weeks. Uh, the futures look positive. They were like positive for like zero point twenty five percent, and uh, by the end of the day, it was down three percent or close to it. So I'm like, come on, right. like it's yeah, okay, like a. It's just, but you know, that's what I guess sells. It's those headlines. Uh, that's what people watch it for. So, I mean, I get it at some point, but uh, be careful with those, especially if you're someone like we mentioned, like if you're, if you know yourself and you might panic easily with those headlines, just don't look at it. <laughs> yeah. And those headlines are just a snapshot in, in time on the shortest term possible because they're trying to sell daily news. So that news headline is a snapshot in time. For instance, I saw a headline yesterday about how Apple has fallen so much as of 
as of late, um, which is true. Stock is down about 20% from its, uh, its high of, you know, maybe three weeks ago. This is true. And the stock is up 40% for the year still, given that. So that headline, you might think, wow, Apple's been just a horrendous performer. No, Apple's been an incredible performer. So it's it's a snapshot in time, and it needs more context. Uh, that's that's a prime example. If you have a stock that does forty percent for the year, and it and and the news headline was that it sucked, you need to follow new different news headlines because you cannot expect forty percent returns on positions every year. If you if you're if you're getting that, well, you're going to be compounding wealth at a supremely fast rate, and uh, you should probably slide into my Twitter DMs. All right. Actually, there is one headline that will trigger my attention for a specific company. Um, if I uh, thankfully it hasn't happened for any of the companies that I own, but if I see a headline or if I would see a headline for a company I own, and it says, for example, it's under investigation by the SEC in the states, mm. that is something that I will dig into and keep a very very close eye on because that's usually not a great thing and can lead to a lot of uh, not so fun things if you're a shareholder of that company. Very good point. And we also didn't mention if a short seller report comes out, uh, you know, same thing with an investigation. There might be, there could be nothing wrong. There could be completely nothing wrong. Could be the short sellers trying to profiteer. Uh, It could be, you know, the SEC is not true. It's not right. That happens, but when there's smoke, there's fire, and yeah, this does trigger me, and I, I'm I'm digging into it like uh, a lot. Nicola is a great example. This Nicola, yeah. yeah. I mean, is you and I could have sniffed out the fraud months ago when this stock went parabolic, and uh, but this short report comes out now. There's an investigation. And it's a complete disaster. Trevor Milton deletes his Twitter, resigns from the company. It's probably going to zero. Yeah. Anyways. If you get a short and a SEC investigation, you you probably should consider selling that position. You've probably already lost all your money. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, maybe maybe try to recoup some of that, that cost. All right, let's wrap this up. Simon, what's on your watch list? Uh, yeah, well, this week it was probably, like I mentioned, it was New Vage just because, uh, you know, it's an interesting payment company. So I'll be digging more in that prospectus. Uh, that's the one I'm kind of looking at. I've got a few um, buy orders uh, from some limit orders for companies I've already talked about. So uh, Digital Realty Trust and a couple other ones. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by New Vage. It's kind of nice to have a payment processor in Canada. Um, I guess Shopify could probably fall into that in a few other companies but um i'll uh, i'll dig into more more into it and uh at some point we can do a deep dive into them how about you brayden yeah I'm, I'm counting on you to uh report back because i'm a big fan of payment processors as you know uh and so i'm very interested as this is listed on the tsx um what am i looking at as you know and if you've listened to this podcast last couple episodes I love Autodesk right now. Uh, 
for people who don't know my investing strategy, it's pinned at the top of my Twitter. I'm a Twitter guy now, by the way, at Bredo Capital, which is a hilarious Twitter name. It's kind of a joke, but I, but I like it. At Bredo Capital, B-R-A-D-O Capital. And I mentioned that I don't care about being too concentrated in some names. If I, if I think that some names are incredible businesses, have great moats, I'm going to continue to add to them, and then I essentially do nothing. And that's what I'm doing with Autodesk right now. I'm continuing to think it's a fantastic business. But what I will give you is something on my watch list is after seeing a deep dive uh, yesterday on Tencent and their market share in all of the revenue streams as they challenge the big behemoths on a global scale for cloud, gaming, payments, e-commerce, social media, and ads. The fact that they are on the scale against the biggest company in that category for all of those segments makes it very interesting. And as we talked about before, there's a, there's a few people who live in China. Hey, join the club, Braden. Join the club. I know you own. I know you own some ten cent. This is a company that's massive that is going to become even more massive, in my opinion. So I'm still looking at it. Yeah, I don't love investing in Chinese companies, but I'm I'm still looking at it. That does it for this episode, guys. Haven't even mentioned. Went the whole podcast without mentioning. Stratosphere two launches on Monday. We had 55 testers. There was a survey that went out today. Thank you so much to everyone who looked at it. Starting Monday, stratosphereinvesting.com is a unbelievably good platform for doing all of your research in one spot. There's a company search. You can find everything you could possibly need to know about a business. And there's a stock screener, community forum, earnings calendar, my top picks all in one place, both U.S. and Canada, all in one place. Subscription starts at $9.99 a month, cheaper than Netflix, and it's going to help you out with your future. That does it for this episode, guys. We will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.